So we decided to call this training neurodevelopmental conditions. Um, probably many of you have been on other Blue Sky trainings, perhaps about ASD, autism or ADHD or different aspects of it. Um, there's been external trainers and internal trainers. Um, and this is an attempt to kind of pull it all together and have an overview. The field is changing all the time, and that's partly why um, I'm very, very happy for Katie or anyone else to correct me at any time, um, because our understanding of these conditions, even the names for these conditions, really are a constant change. So um, I'll be talking a fair amount about uh, the person I know best with autism, who's my daughter. Um, and she's had three different diagnoses. She's actually got the same condition, but they were just called different things in her life cycle. So we can see how much our understanding, the research, how things are viewed changes. So we'll, we'll cover that a little bit. Um, when I think about all the kids I work with, um, all the kids you look after, a lot of them have got a neurodevelopmental condition. So it feels really important for us to know what are these different terms? What is that about? Is that just their trauma? Were they born with this? Was it created? To know what's out there so that if our child has a diagnosis, we've got some idea of how to respond or to know what's out there so we can get a sense of, hmm, I wonder if there's something else going on that I didn't know about, is really, really useful. I think it'll be um, really helpful for you as foster carers and staff to just get a bit of a handle on what these different things mean. One thing I'm particularly fascinated with is um, the nature-nurture debate and whether we're born with these things or whether they're created. And the general view these days, it's a, a bit of both. Um, so we'll be keeping a, an overview on that as we go along as well. So just to explain, neuro means anything to do with the nerves, the nervous system, the brain, the spine. Developmental means it affects us as we grow. So neurodevelopment is a term referring to the brain's development of neurological pathways that influence performance or functioning. That's the key element. Something is different in these conditions as the brain evolves. And the way that we know that is it impacts what people are able to do. Um, that can be intellectual functioning or learning disabilities, reading ability, social skills, memory, attention or focus skills. Obviously, we've all got different abilities in all of those areas. But here we're talking about a condition or a disorder that impacts one or more of those areas so strongly that it makes life tougher or that we're aware of it. So either the person themselves would be very aware of it. Oh my goodness, I just, I don't know how I'm supposed to learn to read the, the letters don't make any sense to me. Or we're very aware of it. Why can't that child sit still? They're always on the go. They can never concentrate. So it's where our personality differences cross over the line into a condition and it's actually affecting everyday life. 
Um, as you can see from our title slide, the key ones are ASD or autism, autistic spectrum disorder, um, ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, PDA, which is part of autism, which we'll have a brief look at, pathological demand avoidance. This is all in your notes, so don't worry about scribbling it. FASD, fetal alcohol syndrome disorder, ODD, oppositional defiance disorder. Great. Okay, I got through that. All right. Um, also, other examples of neurodevelopmental conditions that we're not looking at specifically today um, are things like intellectual disability, learning disability, cerebral palsy, um, impairments in vision and hearing. These would all come under the umbrella of neurodevelopmental conditions. Key ones we're going to focus on today, ASD, ADHD, PDA and FASD. Okay, hopefully um, by the end of today, these, um, what's the word? Katie, what's the word? What, what's PDA? It's short for, what's that called? An acronym? Anyone? Okay. What? Uh, you know when you get a shortening, like... Yeah. So ADHD, what it stands for, an acronym. Right. Thank you. Um, <laughs> maybe. Maybe. Uh, oh, Katie just messaged me. Yes, <laughs> it is an acronym. Great. Um, if this diagram um, makes your head hurt, don't worry too much. Um, having worked with Blue Sky for a while, one of my key thinkings is around the TLC kids, kids who are lucky enough to be on the TLC program. I think most of our children that we look after have attachment difficulties, they're in care, um, and developmental trauma, which means not necessarily a one-off trauma, but an ongoing negative experiences that influence how you develop. But this is partly my thinking about, and some of them have got something else as well. So if we look up here, I haven't got a pointer there, have I? There we go. What shall I have? Right. Hmm. Oh, that's not what I want to do. Sorry. Give me a minute. Aha. Right. See that little red thing? No, that's not there anymore. Bear with. Right. Up at the top there, we've got developmental trauma. Again, this is what many of our children have experienced. It's the type of trauma that's repeated, that's an adverse um, experience, poor parenting, neglect, abuse, um, in an ongoing way that affects the whole of their development. Because you may come across these terms as well, I've just put them in here. So, um, so DTD is developmental trauma disorder, DAD, disorganized attachment disorder. There are more disorders than you've had at hot dinners, reactive attachment disorder, um, 
So it may be useful just if you get a referral of a child, some of these may, may occur. I think it's important as well to say that different professionals use different terms. So often we're talking about the same thing. It's got a different name. But most of the, all of the children that Katie and I are involved in um, can be described as P-A-D-T-Y-P, which isn't a diagnosis. That's just my shorthand for kids who have difficulty with attachment, um, so relationships, and have been developmentally traumatized. Now, what we know in the field is that what these kids need is therapeutic parenting. What they need is a safe, warm, fun home. That's what heals them. Sometimes they need therapy as well. But so this is a lot of what um, Katie and I work with. However, sometimes we're acutely aware that there's something else as well. So the therapeutic parenting is really important, but it might not be enough because there might be something that is comorbid. That is, a, to my mind, a confusing term for it exists alongside. So, yes, you can have developmental trauma, but you might have ADHD as well. Yes, you can have poor attachment, but you might have autism as well. So comorbid, that's quite a useful word. So I was thinking around, okay, our kids are poorly attached and they've got developmental trauma. And these are some of the different words for that. But... Some of them also have learning difficulties, maybe dyslexia that most people are familiar with, dyscalculia, which is a similar difficulty, but with numbers and maths rather than words. Um, some, as well as that developmental trauma, have single traumas so powerful that they've got post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, some have got issues with their sensory processing and I can't, and I can't read my bubble up the top there. I just need to move this. And some might have dyspraxia, which you may have come across. A developmental disorder of the brain in childhood causing difficulties in activities requiring coordination and movement. So what we might often refer to as lack of coordination or clumsiness. Again, that's got another term. DCD, Developmental Coordination Disorder. So you start to see that um, a lot of things with a lot of different names, some are disorders, some aren't, um, but it's really helpful to know if some of these are affecting some of the kids um, that you may be looking after. I won't go into the bottom of this in detail, <clears throat> but it's just worth knowing that we're talking about lots of different fields of research and thinking here. So a lot of this stuff comes from the psychiatric field. So all psychiatrists have to be doctors. Um, so I'm a psychotherapist, Katie's a psychotherapist, we aren't medical doctors. Um, a psychiatrist is a medical doctor who's then done some training around how the brain works and mental health. A lot of these come from the DSM, that's the <laughs> Katie, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. So the ones that we're looking at today, autism, ADHD, FASD are all from this massive manual 
And that shows how much things change because every time they revise it, they take things out, they put things in, they give it a different name. Um, so it is a confusing field, but there is a, um, a kind of Bible, if you like, to go back to, um, to get clarity about if someone has got this diagnosis, what does that mean? What, who, who diagnosed them from what symptoms? And crucially, what is the treatment, which we're going to look at today? Why does it make any difference? Say I've work, I'm living with a child and, you know, they've got difficulties, but of course they have because of their early upbringing. If I knew they also had sensory processing disorder, what would I do differently? Anything? Do they need different input? Do they need medication? This is the kind of field that we are visiting today. All right. Um, that is just a larger version of the above because I know it was very small. Um, just that's my kind of overview just before we launch into one of our key topics, which is autism. Can I just check with my two co-hosts um, if, Ed, there's anything technical that's going wrong and Katie, anything you want to add at this point? It's all good. Fab. Good to know. Thank you. <laughs> it's funny sitting in my room talking to myself, but um, good to know you're there. Right. So autism fascinating topic um the official title i may stand corrected by my colleague but as i understand it is now asd that if someone was to go today for a diagnosis they would be diagnosed with asd which would mean they have an autistic spectrum disorder We'll look in a minute at all the other different names that are around. But what this is, is neurological. So back to the nerves, the brain, the spine condition that affects, and think about these three, communicating, relating, and understanding. So that's pretty massive in terms of how we function in the world, given that we're social beings. If there's difficulties with how I communicate, how I relate, and what sense I make, I'm going to find life hard. And this is about myself, others, and the world generally. Um, that is all going to be a little bit more confusing. There's some books written about autism with titles like How to Raise a Martian or um, Feeling Like an Alien. It's often a metaphor that's used about just feeling a bit different from what is called neurotypical people. So people who don't have ADHD or ASD are referred to as neurotypical. So you're, if you don't have one of those conditions, your brain works in a standard way. If you have one of those conditions, it's less typical. That's what we're looking at today. As I'm sure you're aware, it's a hidden disability. When I think of being a little girl and first coming across disability, it was very much, oh, look, mummy, there's somebody in a wheelchair or somebody who can't walk or um, 
why is that mango a white stick? Something that I could see. So autism is much more hidden. It's not always easy to recognize. Um, there are some ways, so this is from the Welsh Autism Association. This banner here, um, if someone's got that on a bracelet or on a lanyard, that would indicate that they've got autism and actually that they want you to know um, and they might need more support. Some flower lanyards have um, become quite prominent uh, recently. It's not necessarily about autism. Again, someone's got a hidden disability. So um, whether that is in terms of um, jumping the queue um, during lockdown to get food or support around a busy airport, somebody might wear this just to say, you can't see, but I'm actually struggling. Um, so if I ask for help, could you be helpful, please? For me, one of the key things about autism is that how the rest of the world understands people with ASD and how we respond to them has the power to change lives. It's absolutely huge. One thing that comes across to me is that obviously people with ASD have to learn and adapt and, and grow and develop. But when we adapt our thinking to them, when we have more understanding, when environments change, then it makes a huge, huge amount of difference. So this is a disorder it's so useful to have some understanding of. Okay, thinking about statistics, the estimate is that one in every hundred people in the UK have ASD. I don't know if that feels like a lot or not many. It's a lifelong condition. It's not something you grow out of. Um, it affects more men than women. However, um, a lot of women are un underdiagnosed, so that may balance out a little bit more. The kind of typical autism presentation is found more in men than in women as they understand the subtlety of the way autism presents in women it may balance out a bit more um, and not everybody who is on the autistic spectrum is aware of it my uh, daughter had a piano teacher um, and he was diagnosed when he was 72 um, and that was really interesting to talk to him about how he'd always felt a bit different or he hadn't got things he thought he was supposed to get and for him, a diagnosis was really helpful, even at that late stage, because it just helped him to understand and helped the other people around him um, to get a handle. So we've talked about it being known by other names. So autism is one. Asperger's syndrome is interesting. So um, potted history. After um, the term autism was coined it was coined for um generally children with low iq and not very verbal so quite disabled and then asperger mr asperger um saw very very similar traits and difficulties with social and communication but these kids were verbal and able and high functioning. Um, so then the term Asperger's was coined. So it started off with 
two main groups, um, classic autism and Asperger's. That book that I talked about, the DSM, Asperger's is now being taken out of that, so it's not officially a diagnosis anymore, but it is one that many people on the spectrum themselves identify with. Um, sometimes it's referred to as autistic, autistic spectrum condition um, rather than disorder. So a lot of people think condition is a less pathologizing, more respectful way to describe something than you've got a disorder. Um, childhood autism, that's what my daughter was originally diagnosed with, um, but that doesn't exist anymore. Um, and pervasive developmental disorder, one of my favorites. What that sort of means it used to be called PDD in brackets NOS which means not otherwise specified um, so when I was reading about it it kind of seemed like that's the thing you say when you're not sure what else it is but um, all now under the umbrella of ASD and I think one of the most well-known uh, things about autism is that it's referred to as a spectrum um, because it's so varied, so varied. Now, this slide is really interesting because it portrays the spectrum really as around ability. So it's saying on the one hand, you might have people that we'd refer to more as having classic autism. They've got an additional learning disability, be more severely impaired, possibly not verbal, may never live independently. And on the other hand of the spectrum, um, people who are average or above average intellect um, referred to as high functioning autism or Asperger's. However, the way I see it, is more like there's different spectra. So for any one individual, you might be able to say where they exist on here. So how profound is their autism? For some people, it's mild. For some people, it's very profound. And you've also got that intelligence um, scale that we were looking at in the previous diagram and communication as well. Um, there's a fascinating book called uh, Why I Jump. Um, and there you had somebody who's very autistic, um, nonverbal, but once they found a technology that helped them communicate, actually very intelligent and very able. But obviously before the technology one wasn't able to understand what was going on inside. You've got someone like Rain Man. I don't know if you've seen the film. He's highly, highly intelligent, but also very autistic. So um, quite a challenge to have relationships or manage his own life. Um, I was talking to my niece, who's just done a degree in... The psychology of education and she was saying that this is being developed now spectra is kind of old hat and they're talking about constellation so there's so much difference and ways of presentation that rather than it being linear or like that it's just 
And sometimes the more differences you get, then it can kind of blow your mind a bit because then you think, well, hang on, are all these people the same? Have they all got the same disorder or are we talking about something different here? Um, the key elements, as we said before, communication, understanding and relating. These will be the challenges. Um, but the differences are huge. And to quote from my daughter's favorite quote, if you've met one autistic person, you've met one autistic person. Um, the differences are as huge as the similarities. Okay. Um, Katie, is there anything urgent? Um, I've got four or five more slides before we have a breakout for discussion. Just check if she's chatted me anything. Okay, fabulous. Right, my apologies. I've gone on to the wrong slide. Um, and I'm not quite sure how to get back. So give me a minute. Man. Right, just hold that thought. There, perfect. Right, am I back where I need to be? I will assume so. Okay. Right, so this is what brings things together. So the more you think about autism, the more you can think, oh my goodness, there's so many differences and, and so much individual difference amongst people. But there is some key similarities. My first ever training I went on as a parent with a child with autism was fascinating because we had the whole spectrum in the room. We had people whose children didn't speak. We had people whose children didn't stop speaking. We had adults, we had little ones, very different personalities, different genders. And yet there was something that tied them all together. And interestingly, um, this isn't part of the diagnosis, but it, I just find it interesting. Almost all of them absolutely hated having their hair cut. This was, and all these different people, this was something that tied them all together, um, which we'll, we'll have a look a bit now. So key areas, social communication, social imagination and flexibility of thought and social interaction. As you can see, the key word in all those three is social so those that is the essence of how someone would be diagnosed as having asd rather than being neurotypical that they were really struggling in those three areas however very very common is also restricted or repetitive patterns of behavior restricted or repetitive interests or activities and unusual sensory responses so frequently someone with asd uh, will um, display these also. 
So what you get diagnosed on is these three at the top, but what you often find or might make you start to think, oh, that's interesting. Um, instead of running around and playing with the other kids, uh, he wants to tell me about different washing machines and what their model numbers are. Um, those are more symptoms than um, the actual essence, but it's very, very common. Um, in my experience, so much of what we see in someone with ASD is about anxiety and about ways to cope with anxiety. I think their condition means that they're much more anxious than lots of people the rest of the time. And a lot of the things like the restricted repetitive interests are about managing that anxiety, which is why there's so much overlap with, with most of our foster kids. There's just, it's harder to feel safe in the world. Most of these things are very understandable. Oh, goodness. That's my phone speaking for itself. Most of these things are very understandable human behaviours. I'm sure we all have times where something's too loud for us or um, we're not really on our game in terms of social interaction or we just want to eat the same food over and over again. But for people with ASD, their threshold is at different places. So whereas I might find it too loud at a rock concert, um, somebody with ASD might find it too loud that I'm sitting in the next room from them eating a packet of crisps. So there's nothing kind of weird and odd. It's just extreme responses that make everyday life difficult. Um, Again, when I'm confused or overwhelmed or if I'm in a new country and I don't understand the language that people are speaking, I will have a lot of problems with social interaction. Um, so that gives me an insight. Oh, my goodness. If you know what, if everyone was speaking Japanese or there were different customs and cultures, that's often how ASD people feel in the neurotypical world. Just like I don't get the rules. What's going on here? Um, so emotional safety and thinking about anxiety is is very key i have something on the chat oh interesting question john katie can you note that one about sensory sensitivity yeah we're going to look a little bit about sensory issues so again these are not uh, ways to diagnose somebody but they're frequent, frequent signs or symptoms that might make you start thinking, oh, that's interesting. I won't talk about all of them, but do read this later. Um, repeating certain words or phrases over and over again, very common. And this is called echolalia. So often as uh, kids with ASD start to speak, it'll be more repetitive or quoted from TV programs rather than their own speech. Um, this one is uh, very, very key, taking things literally, um, struggling with sarcasm and metaphor, um, just not getting banter, humour, uh, metaphor, that lack of social imagination. Um, may not respond to greetings and farewells. One uh, kind of top tip for teachers when they're learning about how to work with people with ASD is to use the name. So if you say something like, okay, class, everyone outside, Johnny might just sit there. 
because he's not taking that whole picture because you haven't said whole class and Johnny go outside. So um, yeah, that's interesting. May not be interested in their peers, may not know that other people are there to seek support when they're in comfort and stress talking at others so when you've got that monologue and then I did this and then I did that and I went and then the superman is like that and he's got a blue cloak and he's red and he's got but his friend is not and then at you not with you um emotional responses can be inappropriate rude and unsympathetic um and makes comments without awareness of social niceties so um you might get the classic someone giving a gift and instead of saying oh thank you very much thinking mm, not really my thing say i got the gift i don't like it so less aware of what's going on for other people and social niceties um Again, I won't go through all of these, but often there's a sense of reduced creativity, which means difficulty in problem solving. So perhaps one of the reasons I always like to walk a certain way to school is because I don't have the creativity to adapt. So if I always go the same way, I know I'll be safe. But what if they block off this road? Will I be able to think on my feet and go, oh, okay, I'll go down here instead, or will I just stand there and panic? Um, often it's stand there and panic. The narrow range of interest routines and repetitious behaviours um, is very common, and this one is key, insists of following own agenda. I think that's, I haven't met many people with ASD who weren't very focused on their own agenda. We all are to some extent, but um, hard to share the space to share the the to and froness of conversation um or negotiate about what we'll do today um a dislike of change which can lead to anxiety or aggression um can have repetitive movements such as hand flapping prefers familiar routines like things to be just right and again, for me, that kind of relates to anxiety. Um, I think we all like that when we're really, really anxious. Um, but if you can't think ahead, if you can't predict other people's responses, if you don't think you're going to be able to cope, if there's a change in plan, you're going to really, really want things to be exactly the same. Um, might notice what they often notice in young kids is a lack of pointing because pointing indicates oh look let's look at that together a shared interest often doesn't happen or a lack of social smile um the eye contact thing is a big one uh often people say oh they can't be autistic because they make eye contact it wasn't one of our three areas of key diagnosis so often they can find it difficult to make eye contact but not necessarily um, it's only those three things that applies to everybody the questions that people have been putting through 
this morning already and I'm going to try and answer one of them and give Helen a little bit of a break and then I'm going to pass back over to Helen. So there are a collection of questions around comorbidity with people asking can this be found with this, can this be found with this, can this be found with this um, and I gave sort of short answers to people saying short answer yes but let's look at those maybe in a little <laughs> bit more detail. <laughs> Um, Sammy was saying can dyslexia and Asperger's be comorbid and yes absolutely they can. Um, the three things that are most likely to be have comorbidity with all spectrum autistic spectrum disorder are dyslexia, dyspraxia and epilepsy so those are the things that are most likely to be co-diagnosed um, by a psychiatrist. There's lots and lots of other overlaps though of different disorders and I'd suggest that if people are interested, I've got a couple of papers that I can share that are talking about the, the, the different ways in which they can sort of filter together. Um, I would say that while Helen and I are ask, answering these questions, if there's anything that people would like more detail on, I can try and respond while I'm talking and Helen will try and do the same. And if there's ever anything that later on you go, oh, I wish I'd asked that, put it in the chat and we will scoop things up through the day as we go okay thanks those who said yes please to papers i'm never sure whether people want that or not <laughs> so that's fine i'll uh, i'll make sure that I, I, I scoop those up together and they can have a bit of a chat about it um so dyslexia yeah um for those who weren't sure affects reading it's a visual and auditory processing condition and you can see, can't you, how that would have easily have comorbidity with something on the autistic spectrum. Helen, John, yes. did you see John's question about um, do, those, do these levels of sensory sensitivity yes. fluctuate? Were they constant? Would you want yes. to? Yes, again, thank you. That's a good easy one. Yes, <laughs> they fluctuate. <laughs> so can things be comorbid? Yes. Do they fluctuate? Yes. So we'll um, look in a little bit more detail at some um, sensory sensitivities today, but absolutely they fluctuate. And one of the interesting things they fluctuate on, I think, is agenda as well. So some people would say, oh, they can't stand any noise except their music, which is really massively way up high. Um, so some of it's psychological, a lot of it is physical and sensory. But yes, and and... I tend to find that um, not that my daughter gets more or less autistic, but the safer she feels emotionally, it's true for all of us, isn't it? When you're settled, you're in a good space, things are going to bother you less. When you are, she'll even say, I'm having a really aughty day today, mum, as in everything is turned up, the volume is turned up on everything. I can't bear my brother chewing. I can't bear the smell of the fridge. So I think there's a natural fluctuation. And then I also think how it's linked to your mood and where you're at at the time and how sensitive you are. Does that match with your experience, Katie? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Great. Thank you, John. Good question. So we could um, probably next to into one another, the ones I've numbered question mm -hmm. three and question four, there were a, a few people sort of acknowledging the frustration of going through the assessment process and assessment mm. pathways. 
and I'm sure Helen can echo too, having worked for several different health authorities and CAMS teams, um, the difference in language and the different care pathways can be really confusing and really frustrating when all you're trying to do is make sure the child, the young person you're looking after gets the help they need. So I'm um, just recognising that was just a Absolutely. Important. It's an absolute minefield, I think. I, um, a, everything's changing constantly. B, um, lack of resources. C, I think you've got some excellent experts who have a holistic view. I know a bit about attachment. I know a bit about ADHD. But some people are a little bit blinkered in my experience. So if I know all about attachment, when you bring your child to me, I will talk about their attachment. Um, if I know all about ADHD, when you bring your child to me, I will talk about ADHD. But actually what's needed is this kind of overview because so often it's a bit of this and a bit of that. And exactly as Katie's saying, there's no point in diagnosis for its own sake. How does this help? Why do we need to know? Now that we know, what do we do differently? So it's all taking it back to that functionality that we talked about. How is everyday life impaired and how can we improve it? Um, and that may be about understanding, that may be about changing environment, maybe about medication, uh, maybe about parenting, but um, the system as it stands, I, I experience it as very fragmented and um, frustrating, absolutely. Um, different people have different names for the same thing, same names for different things. Some people are very, very keen on diagnosing uh, neurodevelopmental disorders. Some people are very keen on not diagnosing them. Um, yeah, I don't know anybody for whom it isn't a bit of a minefield really yeah. there was a program recently on bbc um that i can't remember the name of um but it was particularly about lockdown but parents of kids with special needs and that touched on the complication of the diagnosis process and getting benefits and getting ehcps for school and the support it is really very very challenging um and there was also a fantastic program that i loved called born naughty question mark um which is now only on youtube it's not on iplayer but they got a couple of kids who had very similar symptoms like not sleeping or not being well behaved uh, not being able to sit still and they had a group of experts talking together from different perspectives and that would be my ideal which you can actually get in private assessments um, but less so on the NHS um, sharing different hypotheses because that's what they are they're working hypotheses I think it might be that I think it might be that let's try that in my experience lots of parents and children go into a service and somebody fairly quickly goes it's all about the child or it's all about the parenting um, and that can send someone down the wrong path for a few years um, and actually if we take this overview it's probably a bit of both but let's think cleverly let's hold our hypotheses lightly um what is going to be most useful for this child and how do we know that what we're saying is not 
um, excluding something else that might be very helpful. So re this program is so interesting because they had, in most of them, they had two kids with the same symptoms and different conclusions. So <laughs> uh, uh, one of them, one of the kids who wouldn't, oh, go away, it's my phone. One of the kids who wouldn't sleep, they put a camera up in their room and the cat was jumping on their bed 12 times a night. So, you know, don't need... Um, complicated diagnosis or intervention it was a practical issue that they changed uh, there were two kids very similar one was very much about parenting and playing off all the adults against each other and they shifted it and the other one had ADHD and he needed medication so for me that was a really good um example of good practice joined up thinking this is what I see what do you see could it be this maybe it is um but unfortunately, we don't have enough of that in our current system. End of rant. <laughs> For now. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else burning now, Katie, or should we take a break? Um, I think probably give people a break. I'll have a chat yep. to you about a couple of other things that have come up in the break and um, yep. see where we put that in. Okay, lovely. So I don't think I... What we're thinking about is when someone's got ASD, they've got impairments in social communication. The way in which each person is affected varies, as we've discussed. They can include difficulties in using and understanding speech. Um, somebody may be very, very verbal, but they don't necessarily understand what they're saying or what is said to them. You often get the um, little professor uh, syndrome, where you've got a child who's five or six or seven, and they sound like uh, they're an old man, they use long words and whole phrases that are copied from somewhere else, but it's not necessarily in context or in the form of a, a conversation. Gestures we've spoken about um, that often draw people in. Sometimes those are unusual or missing. Eye contact, classically, um, people with autism find eye contact difficult, but just as with the sensory issues, sometimes it's the opposite. So there can be staring. Um, tone of voice typically tends to be more flat and with less expression, um, again, not always. And language can be what they call, it's another word for quirky, unusual, yeah, unusual, just that somebody's perfectly able to speak, but you wouldn't have expected them to use that word in that context. So it's all a bit clunky, I guess, is, uh, would be a summary. Hi. Somebody spoke. Did you need me? No. Okie dokie. Well, yeah. Um, so in terms of impacting on everyday life, which is obviously what we're thinking about. There's an awful lot of communication that is actually really complex that when you've absorbed it because you're neurotypical and you just pick it up in your culture around you, in your family, you get when something's jokey, when it's sarcastic, but actually that's quite sophisticated and involves us analyzing lots of nonverbal cues, um, and so it may be very, very difficult um, for people with autism. One of the things that I find fascinating about the autistic brain is that it helps us understand the neurotypical brain. There's so much that we do every day 
that we just take for granted. It's really easy. We've picked it up by osmosis. And yet when a little bit goes wrong, you see actually how complicated it is what we're doing all the time. Um, speaking in a monotone may um, mean that people are misinterpreted or he doesn't care he's got no emotion avoiding eye contact may be interpreted as always oh, just rude um, and often when we're speaking as you can see i am now we rely on our tone of voice our gesture our eye contact um, and not only may people with autism be less skilled in using these but they may pick them up less as well so it's easy uh, for them to be misinterpreted or for us to misinterpret them and i think one of the fascinating things about that is again if i was in a foreign country i might eventually just give up it's just too difficult i keep going to these parties i don't understand the language i laugh when i shouldn't i don't laugh when i should it's not actually that enjoyable so and a bit anxiety provoking so i think i'm going to stop so in my experience some people with autism do not have a strong need for social connection a lot do they just don't know how or it's too painful or it's too difficult or it's too awkward um yeah uh the last one about interpreting language literally um and things like pull your socks up or i could eat a horse can become very confusing i've always got loads of really good examples before i do training and then when i do it i forget um obviously this can impact building sustaining relationships so like i say for some people with autism the the social desire is actually quite low but for a lot of people it's there it's just so difficult um giving and receiving compliments can be very strange you might have to learn it when someone does this you say thank you whereas most of us learn that just by being an inter interacting so often people with autism need social rules spelt out to them um, in don't necessarily just pick it up naturally as you go along and it's fascinating how many of these little subtle cues and social rules we all know and we've just picked them up um, showing concern for others might need to be taught it uh, there's something called social stories uh, which is a way to help autistic people understand what the social rules and conventions are things like sharing even enjoying conversation um, sometimes people think well what's the point of that and sometimes it needs to be learned or taught and the same with understanding humor um, interestingly i know my daughter is only one person but in all of these areas she has developed massively um, if there was a scale of how autistic she is um, you know she's really shifted not on a good day i mean not on a bad day she'll go back to uh, being strongly antisocial and rude etc but i am astounded at how much now she enjoys understands shares humor has got friends everything is still tricky much trickier than it is for the neurotypical person but um something about understanding and learning and and psychoeducation um 
mean that some areas can really develop and some are always going to be hard work and some ah i've got that now like riding a bike my um one of the metaphors that works really well with me for autism is um about being right or left-handed so i'm right-handed i find it really really hard to do stuff with my left hand i can do it but I have to really concentrate. It feels really clunky and odd and weird. And I'd have to do it a huge amount of times for it to feel natural. Um, so it feels a little bit like that. It's not out of the realm of people's ability or their experience. It's just very not natural. Um, children may find it hard to instigate a game or join in with other children, taking turns, uh, friendships, um, not enjoying conversation um i like this one they may not enjoy conversation in the same way and prefer to discuss factual issues rather than enjoying the interaction with another it can feel a bit like being at a lecture um, rather than a two-way conversation and they may not understand signs of the other person wanting to end the conversation etc because these are all subtle subtle cues um, and often it's harder to pick up on the subtle things. Um, they may find it hard to show empathy. Interestingly, my daughter has a theory that she's over empathic, that she has to withdraw from situations because she just feels flooded by empathy. I think that's probably partly true. And, and at times I think she's so on her own agenda that it's hard for her to think about other people. Um, yeah, I think we've covered the other elements of this. Please excuse me. Um, the social imagination, that sounds like a really kind of strange skill, you know, not that not one that you'd put top of your list. Oh, I must have good social imagination. But actually, it makes a real difference um, in day to day life to be able to predict reactions and events to relate to each other to plan to problem solve that one is so crucial to be creative to come up with ideas out of nothing to cope with change all of this involves a certain amount of imagination flexibility um, and i think rigidity is quite a feature of most people with autism um, that they find it very difficult uh, to be flexible um, Playing team games relies on social imagination. Is somebody going to run up the wing? Is somebody about to lose the ball and I'll have to run back for it? Very, very challenging. Many, many people with autism find team sport absolutely excruciating. Um, to predict how others are feeling or how they're going to react. Um, and coping with changes is really, really difficult. So people with ASD usually prefer routines to unpredictability, sometimes in an absolutely rigid way. Again, I can tell with my daughter, if she's having a good day or a bad day. Sometimes these days she's kind of like, oh, all right. Okay, so we're going later. And other days she can't uh, cope with it at all. But that is partly down to me and how much I warn her, how I manage it. Um, so it's always, in my experience, a two-way two -way thing, how these go. This is crucial. This is one of the key 
elements that people think underpin uh, the difficulties that people with autism have a theory of mind which is the ability to interpret the world through another person's eyes and recognize their emotions beliefs and intentions very very key to all the things we've talked about communication dialogue sharing conversation and in terms of child development it's around age four that neurotypical individuals develop the ability to predict most behaviors and intentions um, start to be able to think about other people that's what happened in that situation um, and the world gets quite a difficult and sometimes scary place um, if you're unable to do this right we're just talking about positives as well we haven't really been talking about you know, of autism. Yeah. I'm just saying how focused somebody with autism can be. I've, I've had a lad who was a national champion because he did exactly as he was asked where other kids mm -hmm. might not have done. So there are a lot of positives as well for, you know. Yeah, um, thank you for that. As well as um, negatives. There are quite a few negatives, but I just thought I'd stick that out there. Helps, I think this is true. see if any other people that might feel the same or it's just me most personality types is positives and negatives i think that's really important and um, whether it's a difference or a disability is also uh, really crucial and there's something about the way people learn so for example out of my four kids uh shula is on the spectrum is the most polite not because it comes naturally to her but because when she learned the role <laughs> that when you answer the door you say hello and when someone leaves you say thank you very much for coming it was very nice to see you <laughs> so she does it and uh yeah it's great but no you're absolutely right and um so far we've been looking much more at the the struggles rather than the positives thank you for raising that you're absolutely right there's a massive massive crossover between um, many of our kids in foster care, um, most of them have had adverse experiences, have developmental trauma, and most of them have poor attachment. And if you list a lot of the symptoms side by side, they're very, very similar. Because if you spent most of your childhood not feeling safe, trying to survive, trying to deal with trauma, you're not going to have time to develop the social niceties that we're talking about, to develop empathy, to um, understand banter and sarcasm. So a lot of the root cause, the lack of feeling safe, the anxiety, you're going to cope with in similar ways. So you either haven't had the chance, the opportunity to develop those areas of the brain because you've been surviving or you come up with similar strategies that autistic people do in order to cope with the world that feels unsafe, difficult to understand. Um, so absolutely, you've got a lot of similar coping mechanisms. And I think correct diagnosis is so important and sometimes so difficult and sometimes the honest answer should be yeah we're not sure give it a bit of time and sometimes the proof is in the pudding so you might get somebody who seems very adhd -E. um you might have been parenting them well for a couple of years nothing's calmed down so the team might decide it's time to try medication um if the medication makes a huge difference 
and you can see in their functioning that it absolutely changes when they take it and when it wears off then in some ways you've got your answer <laughs> that um, however if the child doesn't have ADHD the medication won't help them now you haven't got something similar for autism but you certainly have the knowledge that some of these things will change over time with therapeutic parenting with good parenting as the young person catches up in their social skills as they feel emotionally safe they start to learn things that they didn't before absolutely um, and that is the crossover that we're talking between something that was always there versus something that is due to the poor environment and you improve the environment and they're able to catch up okay we, we will um look a little bit more about that nurture nature diagnosis um but you're absolutely uh, for me a good diagnosis is worth its weight in gold and a bad diagnosis makes everything worse so um and given that lots of different professionals have different views that can be quite tricky but i absolutely agree we i don't think we either want to over or under diagnose I think sometimes sensory issues can be behind an awful lot of the behavior or the traits that we see in an autistic individual. Um, therefore, if you've got these sensory issues anyway, which are poorly attached and developmentally traumatized young people are likely, then it can look like autism as well. But actually, we're trying to separate that out just because somebody is hypersensitive with their smell doesn't mean they're autistic however some autistic people's oversensitivity withdrawal from the world overwhelm screaming when you don't understand might be due to the fact that as soon as they walk in your house they can smell the rotting tomato at the bottom of the bin that you can't smell um, or that the scratching noise the uh, cat makes on the post drives them crazy so this is not uh, confined to autistic people, but it's always worth thinking about. So frequently, both with developmental trauma and with neurodevelopmental conditions, what you have in all of these senses is potentially the dial is set at an unusual level, either too high or too low, or as, was it John or Sam? was saying earlier sometimes you've got a wobbly dial that can go up and low so you get some kids very low tactile they can hardly feel you know that's part of what the deep pressure can be about um, and others who just touch ow you hit me really light touch um, that sense of movement somebody can be upside down all the time or somebody can be ooh, I don't even like being on a swing. Um, proprioception, which I know all about, but for some reason my words have left me a sense of where your body is in space, as well as our more standard ones, looking, hearing, smelling and tasting. All of these can either be very under, so hardly any sense of taste, or very over. I can taste that tiny bit of black pepper that you put in the stew that you didn't put in last week. And what the implications of this are 
is sensitivity. So often referred to as fussiness or difficult. But again, any situation where you found the food too spicy or the music too loud, or um, you would probably get distressed and anxious. Um, so you can see how this can lead to a lot of anxiety and a lot of desire to control the world because it feels uncomfortable it's scratchy or itchy or get this label out of my trousers because I can't bear it or in my daughter's case any clothes <laughs> yeah um, spent the first three years of her life pretty much naked and we lived in Glasgow so that was quite interesting because it was bloody cold so she'd be in the park wrapped up in about four blankets fortunately now she's at mainstream school she does wear clothes so there you go um, that's a bonus the other uh, sensory element that sometimes is underdeveloped, not underdeveloped, we don't always talk about it, is the eighth sense, which is interoception. So that's feedback from our stomach, from our liver, from our internal organs. Um, and sometimes that's really loud for people on the spectrum. You know, sometimes I can hear my heart beating, I can feel it and it's quite panicky because it feels like it's turned up very loud. So um, as uh, we were saying before, on each of these eight senses, it can either be high or low or both at different times. But it just makes the world that little bit less safe, a little bit more scary. What if? What if um, something's going to be really loud and horrible? What if I'm in a crowd and everyone's pressing around me? So it can lead to more anxiety, which can lead to more avoidance or other coping mechanisms. How this impacts on day-to-day -day life, they may have decreased or increased feelings of pain, inability to tolerate certain smells, sensitivity to lighting in shops, so sometimes, especially with our nonverbal kids, just that you're going out you're going to a supermarket there's a meltdown it could be the smell it could be the noise it could be the lighting um so sometimes it's a process of elimination dislike of certain colors sensitivity to touch um distress and anxiety in busy environments so this um all of this knowledge is very individual but the more we can understand on a general term and with each person means that we can be very helpful in our responding. Um, so if we're not sure, so like that situation in the supermarket, we can ask, we can ask the individual, we can ask someone who knows them well, or we can ask a community about what might this be. One thing I find really helpful about my daughter is that she's very verbal and articulate. So she can say, when I walk into a supermarket, when I play sport, it feels like this, which really helps me to understand the other kids I work with who are not so able to put it into words. Um, and we start thinking about, okay, there's things that they can learn, we need to teach them skills they can improve, but also what do we do? How can we make our environment more uh, friendly for this particular person? and schools are getting much better at having quiet spaces, calm spaces. And in terms of communication, which is key, there are ways we can adapt. 
In terms of adapting communication, um, there's some very concrete things we can do. Speak slowly and clearly. So anybody who's struggling to understand us, speak slowly and clearly. Don't use idioms or metaphors or assume that you've got the same frame of reference. Make languages simple and plain and short instructions. Give somebody time to process um, the information and avoid relying on your gesture or making assumptions, your facial expression or tone of voice. So use your language as clearly, simply and precisely as you can, can make a lot of difference. And I know um, from various children that once their teachers get this, um, it can make a huge difference to their classroom experience. This um, is leading on to people's points about the more positive aspects. So this is uh, somebody just noticing that uh, their son was not a smiley baby um, and often quite arches back and feel quite uncomfortable with things. Um, but he was babbling away at 18 months, um, trying to join in conversations. He did not like loud, unexpected sounds. And as a toddler, he started displaying some quirky behavior. That's often when people first notice some differences. He would line up his shoes around him and spend hours lining up his toys. Again, this isn't part of a diagnosis, but it's very, very common um, that lots of kids on the spectrum prefer to order toys and line them up than play with them in an imaginative way. Um, his vocabulary consisted of truck and dink, which caused a lot of frustration for him. And again, some of the signs that we see of autism, as well as being around anxiety, are also around frustration. So if you can't communicate or understand what's going on, some of your anger will be around that. He only liked pink foods and he refused to wear shoes. He hated the feel of labels on clothes and refused to wear jumpers. Recently, we went to a paediatrician and left with a diagnosis of Asperger's syndrome, so this is a few years old, which allowed us to receive extra help at school. His favourite subject is maths, quite common, something that's quite clear, has got a right answer and a wrong answer. It's not all that woolly, imaginative English literature stuff. Um, he loves the fact that he doesn't need a calculator to add several numbers together, and he's also in the robotics class with older children. Uh, his dad says, I don't see an autistic spectrum disorder as a, as a disability. It has lots of positive effects like dedication and focus on interested tasks, which reflects um, people's thinking earlier. And you probably all recognise Greta Thunberg. Um, the way she says it is being different is a gift. It makes me see things from outside the box. I don't easily fall for lies. I can see through things. If I would have been like everyone else, I wouldn't have started this school strike, for instance. There's a whole debate in the autism field about is this a difference? And actually, it's just about the world adapting. The only problem that autistic people have is the world not being very sensitive. Or is it a disability? Um, I was on an um, autistic uh, training study course up in Glasgow and it was a very interesting mix of people, different professionals, people who were autistic themselves, people who had autistic children, some people from the theoretical side, some people from the more practical caring side and this is probably the biggest debate 
that we had. Um, I think it's probably different for everybody. Um, and I think there are many positive features, as mentioned. There's also a whole um, pro-ASPE movement. So people with Asperger's or high-functioning autism, as it was called, um, not wanting to own this as a disability, but just, you know, so I'm different. Who says that's the way to be? Why is neurotypical better? But the truth is for a lot of people, it can be a disability. It can severely impact on the way um, that they negotiate daily life and uh, help and understanding and adapting the way we respond can make a huge difference. Um, provoke some thinking and, and thinking about why it is that there are drivers for why people might seek a particular diagnoses or not and thinking mm -hmm. about how um, a diagnosis of attachment disorders um, with its reliance on thinking about adverse childhood experiences is, is of course going to be much harder for a family to hear and be positively part of and considering a diagnosis for autistic spectrum condition or disorder. Mm. Um, so I think <clears throat> just recognising that if you've got children who are going through assessment at the moment it is an incredibly sensitive area yes. and there are going to be people pushing forward different diagnoses and different pathways for different reasons that so just mm. as an interesting conversation. Well the implications are huge aren't they so mm -hmm. if um, my child is very poorly behaved at school and at home um, if someone says to me ah oh, that's because they've got this condition and actually you're doing great as a parent that feels so different from no there's they're an absolutely typical child the reason they're like this is because of your parenting that's that's huge also if you um, have a child who's hyper and off the ceiling and finds it hard to the difference between somebody saying no that's just his personality you need to live with that versus ah oh, i think there might be an imbalance in his brain and there's some medication we can try but i think even above and beyond that as with most things it's the attitude of the professional that makes a huge difference i've met a lot of excellent thoughtful think outside the box weigh up the pros and cons work with the parent what do you think if you've got a diagnosis what would that mean etc etc and unfortunately i've met a few patronizing it's always the parent's fault um as well which is so i think if you are lucky enough to go through the process with somebody who's very knowledgeable but also human and willing to admit when they don't know and they need more information that makes so much difference a brief re-emphasis of anxiety so whether this is a neurodevelopmental condition can't believe it's moved on again Anyway, a neurodevelopmental condition or attachment issues, developmental trauma, all of the above, a lot of what we can focus on with any of these conditions is about helping people feel emotionally safe and helping them manage their anxiety. So there is a well-known phenomena called the cloak of autism. So that is where kids 
present with quite a few traits of autism um, that we might typically think difficulty with social skills, um, lack of empathy, etc. But um, it's actually what they developed as part of their experience and they can be helped to uh, heal from that and move forward through what we know about therapeutic parenting and emotional safety. Um, so basically sometimes with our kids it can look like autism but it isn't. Sometimes actually the fact that they are in care is related to the fact that they originally had a condition. So for example, if somebody's born with ADHD into a family that's kind of struggling, but just about coping, but this kid's kind of extra needs can push the family over the edge. So sometimes it's an interaction between um, the fact that the child has additional complex needs and the family were just on the edge of coping anyway. And sometimes um, epigenetics comes into play. This is one of my favorite things and I really, my understanding of it is so simplistic and so not complex, but I think it's so important. So what we understand now is it's less, is it nature? you were born with it or is it nurture your environment and the way you were parented? So many conditions from lung cancer to ADHD depend on an interaction. So you can have a gene for something such as lung cancer, but um, then whether you add the toxic chemical to the mix in terms of smoking, is, means you're more likely or less likely to get it. And that's similar with some of these conditions. Um, so environment in the womb, whether early life is calm and safe or whether there's a lot of toxic stress around. So sometimes the answer is nature and nurture that this child had a propensity through genetics to potentially have ADHD or um, autism. Um, and then the environment was either made it more likely or less likely. Um, yeah, so fascinating to think about. Mm, excuse me. One of the reasons why it is important to try and get the right diagnosis whenever we can is because it determines how we respond. So in my opinion, down the bottom here, psychoeducation is always helpful for parents and children. This is what you're struggling with. This is the name of it. Um, doesn't mean you're bad or wrong. It means these things are a bit more difficult. These things are a bit more easy. We're here to help. Um, also for parents, uh, knowing what children are likely to struggle with, ways to help, so useful. And the therapeutic parenting that we know about with attachment developmental trauma is always going to be useful as well. Um, but if you know a child in foster care um, doesn't have any other conditions, so they have had a difficult upbringing and they're in care, you might focus just on this access here, on the understanding, on the support, helping the school, therapeutic parenting. However, if they've also got ADHD, then you might need something extra. So 
what we can offer in terms of parenting and understanding is necessary, but it's not always sufficient. Sometimes we're thinking, ah, there's an extra issue here that needs more input from a specialist. So in that sense, I think that is why it can be so important if there's something in addition, because it means we might be pouring our heart and soul into uh, nurturing, but actually there's something different in the brain that might need medication or there's a way we need to adapt our environment that's going to help the child maximise um, their experience of life. Lies at the root of so many things. If you, if you don't understand the rules, if you're not sure what's going to happen, if you've got a fear of failure, if you've got sensory difficulties, and this applies equally to our kids on the spectrum and our kids with developmental trauma or both. So knowing how to respond to and support anxiety is crucial with any of these conditions or, um, and it's not just about, oh, protect, protect, don't take them out because it makes them anxious. It's that growing edge. So I want them to feel safe enough in an attachment term so that they can push themselves outside of their comfort zone. We want them to be able to learn. It isn't always about retreating from anxiety. It's also about learning to manage it. Feel the fear and do it anyway, but with lots of support. Okay. I briefly mentioned about pathological demand avoidance. Um, it is controversial. Um, not everyone believes it exists. Some autism specialists don't recognize it. It's not in the DSM manual that we referred to. And yet there's a growing number of um, specialists who perceive this to be a cluster um, of traits. And that's often how new diagnoses come into being that you see oh there's a lot of kids doing that oh those ones over there are doing that oh they're different in that way but hmm they're all and they kind of seems like they're autistic but they're kind of different and then someone looks and thinks oh what are the key elements here that tie this group together so pda stands for pathological demand avoidance pathological means um it's problematic um, so in my opinion, we are all demand avoidant. So if you ask me to do some exercise or cleaning or write a boring report, I will try and avoid that demand um, by suggesting somebody else does it or telling you that my legs don't work or something like that. Um, but this is to an nth degree. So like many diagnoses, such as ADHD, um, sometimes in the popular uh, press or media, it can be quite sort of ridiculed and it's like, oh yeah, I don't like doing stuff either. Oh, I don't like doing what I'm told. But this is extreme. If you've ever met a child with PDA, you know. Um, and it's all, the way I can describe it is it's almost an allergic reaction and the demand doesn't have to be a demand. You will do this. It's all those everyday little requests of parenting. Can you brush your teeth now? Could you pick up that sock? Oh, thanks. Can you call your brother down for tea? Um, can you give me a hand? Anything like that can be experienced as a demand. The demand provokes extreme anxiety and therefore the desire, desire to avoid. So, 
and the little girl I'm thinking about that I used to work with was incredible within about 10 minutes she could come up with about 27 different reasons why um, so for example we're playing a game we're playing the game she wants to play then I say right okay let's change the game I'll throw the ball and you catch it for example a little change um, and she would come up with about 27 different things in that time of all the good reasons not to change this game um, and if talking to me and being cute and trying to bribe me and say oh just 10 more times just 10 more times and I'll, I'll change I promise or um, telling me how the last time someone had thrown the ball to her it had broken her head um, she would then start to get angry and aggressive or we in the waste paper basket or anything anything to avoid this even sometimes things she wants to do I want to go to the park. Great, let's put your shoes on. I can't put my shoes on because I have no legs, for example. So extreme, extreme avoidance, even cutting off your nose to spite your face. Uh, they seem to think is that it is part of the autistic spectrum, but a slightly different presentation. And the reason I think it's important because sometimes the implications for parenting are different um, and in some ways that's why all of these things are important not in themselves because they're labels and we're all individuals but what does it mean what does it mean I need to do as a parent how can I give my best support how can they support them best at school um, another uh, diagnosis that you may come across that can be seen as similar is ODD, oppositional defiance disorder. It kind of says what it does on the tin, really. <laughs> I am oppositional. That means I am against you, not with you, and I defy you. Again, so similar to so many of our kids with developmental trauma anyway, because they haven't learned that adults are safe and should be in charge and I can trust you um, and I've got a strong attachment to you. So such a, a crossover uh, with many of our kids anyway. Um, this one is more usual as a diagnosis than it is actually in the DSM. But um, yeah, I don't know if it actually says that much apart from saying hmm yeah they're oppositional and defiant it's usually diagnosed in childhood um negative irritable and annoying <laughs> which again we can all be at some point particularly like around <laughs> who said that <laughs> um um yeah it's a question of degree and how much it's interfering with the child's ability to live and learn frequent temper tantrums excessive arguments with adults those are the kind of things when you're looking at diagnosis what is how many tantrums is it typical for a seven-year-old having a day mm, none or one maybe two a week okay this child is having 13 so that's excessive um, refusal to comply always questioning rules trying to annoy people blaming others it's never my fault seeking revenge again we may recognize that in ourselves or know lots of children um, who are a little bit like this who wouldn't get a diagnosis or who are like this because of their adverse early experiences so um, there's a lot of crossover here um, in terms of is there a diagnosis or 
is it because they've had abusive childhoods? There's one more in this uh, little group. Um, CD conduct disorder. Um, from what I know, this is even less helpful because it just describes that they don't behave very well, really, to an extreme degree. Um, but then, given the childhoods that many of our foster kids have had, you wouldn't, would you? So whether this is actually a difference in the brain, um, a neuro neurodevelopmental or more a description like, whoa, this is the badly behaved young person. Katie. Yeah, Katie, can I call I on your CAMS experience for any comments in this area, please? Yeah, you can. No problem. I just um, there's quite a few questions come through as well. So okay, be, sure. Um, <clears throat> that, that I think there's a few questions that to me are asking whether ODD and some of the other um, disorders you've just gone through now are pervasive. So are they present all of the time in all areas of their life, or are they selective? Mm which they only happen in some places at some time. Now, from a CAMS perspective, all of the ones you've just gone through, my understanding is they would have to be pervasive. So mm -hmm. present in all areas with all people in order to get a diagnosis. Um, and I think that sort of fits with the idea of a neurodevelopmental disorder, mm -hmm. doesn't it? That this is something about your brain, how your brain is formed and is functioned, and whether your brain has been formed in trauma or whether this is a from birth and lifelong um, condition, your brain will actually be working differently when you are understood to either have traits of disorders or to have a diagnosis of them. So somebody asked, can you grow out of um, ODD, for example? Now, Helen and I, with our therapeutic foster caring heads on, would go, well, if it's, an, if it's about adverse childhood experiences and it's about their attachment and about them having missed out on the basic building blocks of learning, they may well grow out of those presentations of behaviours that they're showing. Um, however, if you have a diagnosis of ODD and have gone through all these routes and there aren't, for example, experiences that would suggest developmental trauma, that is going to be a neurodevelopmental disorder, which is a lifelong condition. How you might adapt to it, and this is, I guess, when somebody was asking about, um, can it be different with different people? I would say sometimes that's when we get into thinking about how learning happens. So children and young people can learn to manage differently in different settings and with different people. And if I put my attachment head on, if a child is with the person who they feel safe with, they're more likely to be able to use their best coping strategies, be able to regulate themselves or be helped to co-regulate their emotional state. And therefore it might look like they're not presenting in the same way because they're being able to manage what is around them. Helen, anything different or additional? I think you put that incredibly eloquently, Katie. I think it's, it is that in theory, if you have a diagnosis of one of these neurodevelopmental disorders, you have that for life, as Katie says. What seems to be very flexible for some people and less so for others is the ability you can learn adapt manage your coping strategies for example adhd that we're going to come on to now a lot of adults with adhd still really struggle but not as much as they did as kids and some of that is about the freedom to be an adult you can structure your environment you don't have to go to school you can choose a job that 
um, suits your energy rather than um, having to sit down at a school desk. Some of it might be that it mellows or adapts over time. So in theory, one of the big differences between having a neurodevelopmental disorder or um, attachment difficulties is that um, they both impact the brain, but one is a more um, organic, pervasive experience and one is more born out of your early experiences and therefore has more potential to change so you can always change and that's the adaptation your coping strategy is what you learn but the neurodevelopmental disorder will always be um, a part of the way you function but you might manage it much better make sense okay so this is uh we're um, two big areas still to cover and that's ADHD and FASD. You will have had it, it's like alphabet spaghetti this, isn't it? Um, right, this is an interesting one. In many ways it's sort of quite clear, here's neurodevelopmental disorders, there's um, the autism side of things and the ADHD side of things. And it's tempting to see them as um, the two big disorders, if you like, which they are, but they feel very, very different to me. Partly, I guess, because one responds to medication and one doesn't. So for me, that makes the autism feel more kind of amorphous, it's more of a, this is the medical condition it's just my personal experience really i'm sure you all have your own thoughts about adhd um it's something in the press that's been incredibly controversial is it just naughty kids is it just lazy parents uh, especially in america there's quite a high uh, prescribing um regime with young children and there can be a view that there's a lot of other things that should be tried before a child is diagnosed with ADHD and given medication. Having said that, I'm absolutely not anti-medication. I think it's incredibly useful um, with the right child and the right diagnosis. Um, what does it stand for? A is for attention. D is for deficit and the other D is for disorder and the H is for hyperactivity. So very hard to attend to tasks, make careless mistakes, procrastinate, start one activity before completing another, easily distracted, unorganized and very forgetful. So again we are focusing pretty much on the negatives here whereas there are positives as well. So in general, Katie, do button if this is wrong. My understanding is that there are two subtypes and one is with the H and one is without the H. So all people with ADD or ADHD will have attention deficit disorder. Some people also have hyperactivity, which is often what we think of. Although again, it's perfectly possible to have ADHD, ADD without the hyperactivity. So impulsive, inattentive, it's the most common behavioral disorder in children. This slide says we don't know what causes ADHD. 
um, but there is a genetic component and we do know that brain chemicals um, are related to it. The latest thing that I read on it said that there were some differences in the sizes of different brain structures and, and how they develop. Um, it's not an ability to concentrate. So again, it's a bit like that eye contact in uh, autism where someone says, well, I can't be autistic because they make eye contact. Um, well, no, he can't have ADHD because he watches films for hours. Um, so it's not an inability to concentrate, but to control what you concentrate on. So even if someone gave you 500 pounds to sit still, could you do it? Some of the kids I work with, no. <laughs> um, Ticks uh, and Tourette's is related. Is that right, Katie, under this kind of umbrella? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so it's the only one we're looking at today where there is a clear um, implication for diagnosis, for um, prescription, for medication. Um, so the right medication for the right person can help people concentrate, help them feel calmer and resist impulses, can increase their attention and listening skills. Um, one of the most common ones is Ritalin, which is a stimulant. And what it actually does is it stimulates the parts of the brain that put the brakes on, the parts of the brain that help us think, slow down, make choices. Um, and interestingly, if, if a kid hasn't got ADHD and they take Ritalin, they don't have the positive impact. So for those of you neuroscientists out there, it targets dopamine and norepinephrine in the brain. Um, it's interesting, the stuff I read recently was saying about how it stimulates the parts of the brain, the prefrontal cortex that help us slow down and think and organize and be calm. But there's also something a bit um, just, there's something about somebody who's very busy and fizzy that sometimes calming doesn't help them calm. What helps them calm is something else that's busy and fizzy. So actually you might get a child who can concentrate better on their homework when they've got the radio on, even though we all go, oh, turn the radio off, you're not concentrating properly. Or that's why fidget toys are there. Perhaps it helps them concentrate rather than distracts them. Perhaps when they've got three things going on, whew, that calms the noises in my head and I can finally concentrate. So sometimes it's a bit counterintuitive, massive generalization, but generally kids on the spectrum, calmer environment, kids with ADHD can respond quite well to stimulation and busyness. Sometimes uh, if there's drugs, sometimes it just kind of stops there. It's like, oh, phew, that's done. They've got the meds. But actually, there's a lot around ADHD. Um, behavioural can help kids with educational, psychological, parent training, perhaps therapy for the person. Um, sometimes needing social skills training as well. Um, because the medication can help somebody much calmer. But if you think they've had five, six, seven, eight, nine years of not learning at the same way that their other four-year-olds were learning because they were just kind of all over the place and not able to take stuff in. So they might have a lot of 
catching up to do and there's some research around um are there some nutritional supplements that can uh can help with the condition as well um this slide next is two um, photo books that are lovely. One is called All Cats Have Asperger's and this one is called All Dogs Have ADHD. So it's a very simple way to remember or sharing with kids that kind of excited puppy thing that's classic uh, ADHD and the kind of slightly aloof, I'm going to do my own thing, I might spend time with you or I might not, um, is more your classic autism. You're laughing, Lisa. <laughs> you obviously know a puppy or a cat. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and I think there's something lovely in that psychoeducation. And so my daughter's favorite book is All Cats Have Asperger's. And I think it's very, uh, it can talk about difference. It can name difference, but it's very affirming. It's not kind of um, alienating. It's kind of, you know, we're all human and some of us are a bit more like this and some of us are a bit more like that. Um, okay. Katie, can Helen, you- I was gonna say, do you wanna just hold fire and answer yes. the questions that were about ADHD? Definitely. Yeah, please, yes. Okay, um, and again, I'll start and then I'll, if you chip in as we go, um, cause I'll read the questions out and I've grouped them together. So we, there are several different questions coming up around what, how, our, really what I've heard is how brains cope when we've got ADHD or ADD as, a, as something that we're thinking about. Um, and one of the things that I've always thought about is how busy brains can be brains that are ready to learn. Mm -hmm. So again, this counterintuitive idea that stimming toys, stimming behaviors, so flicking, moving, the Tourette's type tick syndrome, mm -hmm. Um, music on in the background somebody mentioned we could probably just keep going couldn't we about the other things we can ask our brains to do it's mm -hmm. almost it's almost like juggling so if somebody's brain is formed in this way from the outside it looks like maybe they're trying to avoid the task that you're asking them to do but actually maybe that's what they're needing to do in order to be able to focus and listen and be a bit a busy brain um, yeah, I, yeah. I like the idea that you know if you want something done ask a busy person <laughs> so if you want someone with ADHD or ADD to do something, get them busy and they will be able to be more busy. Asking for a single point of focus probably mm -hmm. isn't going to help them. Mm -hmm. Somebody else asked about or talked about how and the I teenagers... Think motivation do. comes into... Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, somebody else talked about how many of the teenagers they've supported were, are always reaching for energy drinks and sugary treats who have a diagnosis or an understanding of being ADHD or ADD. And again, this is a sort of counterintuitive thing that is quite hard to understand if you've not been in that situation. Helen's mentioned I was CAMS before, I was Blue Sky, and a lot of the teenagers I worked with were hyperactive, did have problems with attention. When they received medication to help work with that bit of the brain that's gonna help slow things down, they didn't like it. It made them feel like they were being slowed down. So then they'd be reaching for energy drinks and reaching for sugary snacks in order to try and bring their brain back to how they were used to having it focused. Not because mm -hmm. they wanted the output of behavior that got them in trouble, 
that they are an operating system that has learned to be a particular way over many, many years. Mm -hmm. So you hate to stop that. Actually, it feels very, very weird. It can feel unsafe. And it's not necessarily a known thing. So again, mm -hmm. there's a, a relationship there between medicating and how you might then try and unmedicate yourself by eating or drinking something that has the opposite reaction. So there's those. And then we had the question earlier around um, pregnancy in utero and thinking about, I, I heard that as a maybe where does ADHD start question. And again, Cam's perspective, happy to go elsewhere. Um, lots of the young people who we had in clinic who had, who had diagnoses of ADHD or ADD had experienced trauma in utero. So while their mums were pregnant, they'd experienced some kind of trauma with the highest level being domestic abuse. Anything else you wanted to add, Helen or? Um. Oh, Nikki, thank you. Yeah, Nikki, sorry. Nikki's just added in. So one of our carers down in Devon that she's knitting while she's listening to this because that helps her focus. Perfect example of how we use a secondary task in order to help a primary focus. And sometimes understanding that is so helpful because what the person, young person has chosen might not be very healthy, such mm -hmm. as sugary drinks or whatever. Understanding the need and maybe, so that's exactly what fiddle toys are for. You transform the need in the class to I'm going to run around and interrupt everybody to I need something to do. So if the need is there, we need to meet it, but we mm -hmm. can try and find healthier ways to meet it. I think in my experience, um, ADHD has an awful lot of people especially if not diagnosed in childhood has a very strong likelihood of self-medication mm -hmm. so uh sugar caffeine alcohol smoking other types of drugs um there's such a drive in that brain for stimulation um that um that's often where people go to try and meet that need somehow so sometimes uh, some people with alcoholism or something when you pair it back it was actually started as a way way to self-manage as adult Again, mental health wards are full of people with undiagnosed adhd interesting and prisons i think yeah i'd agree and at the same time, they're also both full of uh, people who've had early childhood trauma. So we can see um, one cause the other, the other causes this. Uh, utero trauma can interact with the genetics to make ADHD more likely. But on the other hand, um, potentially the parenting wasn't fantastic in early life either because the domestic on so it's in some ways we can kind of say well does it matter you know if this is what we're dealing with if this is what the child is living with does it matter where it came from but sometimes it does because of um what we can hope to progress what we can't what the indications are for treatment um and how we understand that child and how the adults understand that child in terms of when is it I can't do this and when is it I won't do this oh yeah doodling absolutely yeah okay 
Um, so we'll go on to our last big topic and then we'll use the rest of the time for discussion. Now, I have to be honest, this is something I do not know a lot about. Um, I've partly put it in here because a few things I read said it's possibly one of the most underdiagnosed um, aspects of our group of young people. Um, that some stuff we put down to developmental trauma or ADHD or whatever, it's worth looking at fetal alcohol syndrome as well. Um, so I think it's fairly clear these days, although it hasn't always been, that alcohol is not good uh, for unborn babies. Um, it passes across in the placenta and it's more concentrated. Sometimes this is, you know, even before somebody knows they're pregnant. So little bits of alcohol at the wrong stage of development can have a negative impact. But if the mum is a very heavy regular drinker, then the risk increases also. These are the classic symptoms, and I didn't really want to put a picture on here, but if you look online, if you're interested, there's some very classic facial symptoms that um, help people recognize and start thinking, oh, maybe this is related to fecal alcohol. Small head, generally small, hyperactivity, lack of focus, poor coordination. So again, we might start to be thinking, poor co oh, maybe that's dyspraxia, hyperactivity, oh, maybe that's ADHD. Delayed development and problems in thinking, speech, movement, and social skills. Hmm. Kidney defects, um, deformed limbs or fingers, and mood swings. So there's an interesting list there. Some are very concrete, very physical, um, be able to see if that was a case in terms of physical development but others are more the kind of issues that many of our young people are dealing with um, poor judgment mood swings um, hyperactivity lack of focus it's interesting thinking about sort of the big three that we're talking about today so autism in terms of helping it's a lot about how we adapt spotting the signs helping with their anxiety adhd all of that will help stimulation behavioral but possibly medication as well um and in lots of ways, what we're talking about with fetal alcohol syndrome is the kind of therapeutic parenting side of things. So a stable and loving home can be even more sensitive to disruptions in routine than an average child. But again, we know of lots of reasons for that. Likely to develop problems of violence and substance abuse later in life if they've experienced that in their early home life. Do well with regular routines, simple rules to follow and rewards for positive behaviour. That's helpful to have a bit of an idea of um, what we were looking at. Um, one of the key things about fetal alcohol syndrome is, in most cases, not all, it can be clearly diagnosed. Um, because of facial shapes, because of other elements. What we don't always know um, 
is about the pregnancy. So I know about my pregnancies because I was there, but we don't necessarily know about our kids' birth mums' pregnancies or what was going on. Um, Katie, where are you? Um, yeah, hello. Hello, hello. Have you hello. got anything more to add about fetal alcohol syndrome? Um, no, I, I just would, would echo what you said to start with about it being un, undiagnosed and unrecognised in a lot of our children. Mm -hmm. um, and I, yeah, still finding out an awful lot about it, aren't we, and the ongoing effects. If, I'd I say think... people are thinking that it might be a thing. It's, it's often, isn't it, that people will sit on, on this sort of training and go, hang on, something that you've just said has sparked mm. a thought. It's about then coming back to us and expanding that conversation. Absolutely. Yeah. And a lot of the time we are speculating about our kids' early lives. Um, so when I'm reading chronologies, I'm thinking, OK, I do not know that she drank steadily throughout this pregnancy. However, I know she had issues with uh, alcohol and drugs. I know then she got pregnant. I know then she had a baby. Possibly she gave up for nine months. But experience mm. tells us most people find that incredibly hard to do, especially if they're not supported in the right way. Mm. Um, so it's it's a hypothesis that's worth bearing in mind and some of it's helpful so i don't know if you go through a similar process katie but for me i think right i know a fair amount about therapeutic parenting and what helps kids with attachment and trauma so work with lots of you lovely foster carers and for many kids after six months a year two years you can see the bits that are shifting you see oh my goodness they've got much more empathy than they used to have but way he's got a friend or even something simple like i told him off and he didn't have a meltdown it was like hey, hey. um so we see the these things sometimes slow sometimes ooh, ooh, jerky but there overall there is a sense of progress with most kids and then with some there aren't and so I start thinking mm, what can I do differently what can the parents do differently but these are sometimes the questions then we go is there a something else mm. um, so this could be one of the something else's because it's not always easy to spot it's got a lot of similarities to loads of our kids have anyway um but it, it's it's a question worth raising so all of these things are all really helpful for us just to have in mind when things are going well we don't need any diagnoses any you know if if you're parenting and you feel like you're having an impact and they're growing and developing and healing fantastic but when things it's a bit like a car when it breaks down that's when we need to say hmm do we just put it back to where it was or does it need a different type of oil that is a really bad metaphor but there you go <laughs> that's that's all i've got process <laughs> um, of elimination sometimes. thank you very much yeah. yes <laughs> absolutely it is absolutely it is okay so finishing off in terms of presentation before we have more discussion time when we're thinking about this whole spectrum it's not nurture or nature but both and in various combinations so particularly tricky child makes being a new mum especially difficult for this mum who's also experiencing domestic violence her parenting isn't then great the kid 
then has a worse experience um, gets more tricky the parent gets more negative etc etc so both in the womb and after it's a combination of genetics and environment and if nothing else i hope uh, you've learned today that the causes of any neurobehavioral condition so anything like why does this child not speak why does this child not make eye contact why are they angry all the time are complex very rarely does it go from aha you are doing this so you have this it's complex um so thinking about epigenetics different uh studies have found different things but so for an example on the whole someone is not going to get adhd if they don't have some of the genes for adhd but if you live in an area where there's a lot of lead um, and that gets into your blood it's likely to intensify the symptoms so it's not nature or nurture it's both um, and things present in very different ways the cloak of autism or something like fecal alcohol syndrome can look very similar to adhd and we don't have to be kind of amateur um, psychiatrists it's all about hypothesizing process of elimination and going from all this kind of quite technical terms to what's helpful is this child progressing or is this child stuck do we understand this child enough to parent her well what is she struggling with? How can we understand that? Is it a change in environment? Is it medication? Is it acceptance? Because this is something that she's always going to have. Um, so much research about all of these things, um, developing all the time. Is that the same as that or is it something different? Um, so whatever we're saying today may well be different um, by next week. Um, they're all ways that we're all just trying to understand human beings, what their struggles are, what their strengths are, um, and what their needs are. A couple of things about resources. There's so much out there. Just put in any of these into Amazon. But I've just um, covered a couple of the things I like. Uh, if you're interested in PDA, that's an excellent overall view, as is FASD, they do both do what they say on the tin. Um, ADHD is a brilliant book called The Boy From Hell, um, written by a mum, which isn't as punitive as it sounds. It's, it's a great book. All dogs have ADHD, like I said. And then um, that parenting one, A Parent's Guide to ADHD. And in terms of autism, um, Katie was talking about neurodiversity neurodiversity and looking more about difference than disability that's a good one the reason i jump i mentioned that the curious incident of the dog in the night time many people will have heard of or seen the play i heard the author say that it wasn't about someone with autism but everybody i know thinks it is so <laughs> if it i think it does really give some insight into um if you're neurotypical, I think it gives you a good window into an autistic brain, even though that's what he said he wasn't writing about. Anything by Tony Atwood or Temple Grandin is likely to be good. And the NAS, National Autistic Society. Right. <laughs> I'm still here. <laughs> um, thank you very much, everybody. Uh, I can see from your feedback and on the chat very relevant thoughtful comments i was speaking with 
Diane in the room about um, P&C placements and how often we're dealing with a parent um, who's got some of these issues going on um, that they don't always get fully support for. So it feels a bit like uh, an overview today and so many practice issues come out about workshopping, how to manage things, how to respond, and um, there's so much more out there. But um, thank you very much for your patience and your input today and for your tolerance with my lack of Zoom, Zoomility, Zoomosity. Anyway, uh, for the muck up with the breakout rooms. Thank you very much. Um, we hope to um, do some more um, training soon because it's great to have so many people. Okay. Um, thanks again, guys. Have a good day.